June 1st, 2022. I'd like to tonight continue a class that we uh, had and uh, learned together maybe two weeks ago or so, but if you weren't at that class, you'll be okay. I'll quickly catch you up to date with regards to what I want you to know from that class, and it will be quickly redeveloped and expanded in this class. It's called Forget Me Not. That was the part one, and this in turn is the part two. And the basic description and understanding we had over the course of that class was the following. First the principle, and then how we applied it. The principle was that as ironic and maybe counterintuitive as it might appear, and it might seem, forgetfulness is actually very important and vital to our experience as human beings, both with regards to our growth, our creative capacity, as well as our relationship with others. Our creative capacity, if we got stuck on the knowledge that we knew, if we weren't able to quote-unquote forget a little bit of that past, we wouldn't be able to now apply it in new creative ways. If I was stuck with only the traditions and wasn't able to expand them and apply them to my own life, well, then life would become stale and static. That's with regards to application of halakha. With regards to relationships, it applies as well. If your relationship with your spouse is still, if it was, I don't think for either one of you it was, a high school sweetheart and you're still in that uh, premature stage or immature stage throughout your marriage, then you're not really progressing. If your marriage has been stuck or your relationship with another person has been stuck on, we enjoy being with one another because we get ice cream together and it hasn't been able to be expanded. That's what I mean by forgetfulness. I forgot that's how we connected. I now connect in a different way than your relationship as well in that circumstance is going to become stale and static. That being the case, life to a large extent necessitates a certain healthy amount of forgetfulness. I mentioned that we discussed it in the context of the development of Torah in Am Yisrael as well. For example, and that was the beginning of the class and in turn the end of the class, it was the students of Rabbi Akiva, that well-known Gemara in Masechet Yivamot, which was, until just two weeks ago, very relevant to us during that time period, the deaths of Rabbi Akiva's students taking place between Pesach and Shavuot, the Gemara says. And their deaths, the Gemara describes, leaves the world shamim, empty, says Rashi, nishtaki ha-Torah, the Torah was forgotten. And what we suggested of the course of that class was there's that bittersweet element to that forgetfulness of the Torah to the students of Rabbi Akiva. Ultimately speaking, Rabbi Akiva regroups, says the Gemara. He finds in the Safon these five students and he teaches them the continuity of Torah Shbalpeh. And in turn, as we read from the Gemara and Masechet Sanhedrin, much of the compositions that we have with regards to traditional Beraitot, Mishnayot, and Midrashei Halacha are from the students of Rabbi Akiva, which we suggested was specifically possible because they weren't stuck in the past. That ability to quote-unquote have that rupture and now forget the past we don't want to forget it entirely. It's really what we're going to talk about over here today is now what ensured the opportunity for this to stay vibrant and relevant to them in the future. Uh, that's what I'd really like to address and discuss with you in expanding this. It, to a certain extent, and Ralph pointed this out two weeks ago, a certain extent leaves us a little bit bewildered with regards to, well, 
do you mean that we're not grounded in anything? Is life just about breaking from the past? Now, as a matter of fact, in the class, if I remember correctly, Elliot asked, well, how's this applicable with regards to the trajectory of Am Yisrael? Where do you find in Halakha, for whatever reason he was asking, we were discussing, this forgetfulness, which in turn, uh, there's a regrouping and an appropriate new direction. I had two suggestions, if I remember correctly. I want to just quickly reiterate them because, again, it's very relevant to the general concept and discussion over here. I mentioned our approach to Medinat Israel. What's our approach to the land of Israel today? If you turn just 100 years ago to your great-great-grandparents, and if they were religious Jews, they would say to you, or even traditional Jews, we're not settling the land of Israel. That's the renegades. We're not supporting the land of Israel. We'll wait for Mashiach. That was the traditional approach. It was only the iconoclasts, the people who thought out of the box who claimed differently. Today, well today, we quote unquote had a rupture, in turn that forgetfulness, a healthy one, and we've developed in the context of Masoret, of tradition, almost a new direction through an appropriate and healthy forgetfulness. The other example, and I'd like to for a moment or two more focus on this, was with regards to women and Torah. I think this was the other example I gave. If it wasn't, we'll give it now. It was. So it was women and Torah. And what I mean by that is, go back again, just about 100 years or so, go to your great-great-grandmother. I imagine not so much earlier than that would you need to travel in order to find women who were illiterate, certainly in Hebrew, maybe in general. And I mentioned this both in the Middle Eastern countries as well in Eastern European countries. What you were dealing with was women who got their grounding with regards to education, tradition, and religion in the home. Nothing more and nothing less. You might have said, and I imagine it was very true, that was appropriate for them. But as the world progressed, and this is really Hafez uh, Chaim's claim in his Likutei Halachot Sota, as the world progressed, as the world was no longer one in which the standard woman was in the kitchen, was in the home, was being educated in her parents' home, as there was an expectancy of the women, by and large, to be involved in the world, maybe not yet at that point, in equal fashion to men, it stood to reason as well that we needed to carry that over potentially to Torah as well. The concept of women being grounded in the home would be lost in terms of its efficacy as the world progressed. As a result, there needed to be a rupture. Now that's an ironic thing because if you imagine it as such, uh, we're effectively saying we needed to forget the suffix, go away from the Masoret, the tradition, that's right, in order to be able to continue Torah. I mean, that's really the description. That was the statement of Resh Lakish, that sometimes Bitula is the kiyum of the Torah, the annulment. Now, that's very interesting for me. It caused a little bit of soul-searching in the past two weeks based on my conversation with Ralph because generally speaking, when it comes to my approach to halakha, if you've heard it or, or discussed it with me, generally speaking, I will stress very much that halakha is exactly what we've done. It's less dependent upon the text that we have, they must support what we've done. But ultimately speaking, if you ask me, what should I do in this situation? I'm going to say to you, well, what has our community done? What did your father do? That determines the halakha. And we've discussed this on many occasions, many circumstances with regards to that approach. Ironically, my approach will get me stuck in the past if you take it to the full degree. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, I gave a full class on contrasting his approach, which is very much 
in line with what I just mentioned to Hacham Avadia Yosef. In fact, his approach to women's education today is very old school. He says it's all the Avad. We're not very excited and interested in women. He says even when they're being taught some sort of Torah Shabbat Pef, recall from that class, keep away the Ramban in his commentary on the Torah. We don't need that much depth. Okay, that might be appropriate for you or for his community or whatever. Hacham Avadia Yosef is a little bit more expansive. The reason he's more expansive is because he embraces this textual, quote-unquote, forgetful fashion in which, of course, and this is a critical point, it must be grounded in tradition. And this is what Ralph was reminding me after that class. It's dangerous because if I keep mentioning forgetfulness and rupture, there's a certain realization amongst the people, wrong for realization, oh, so we're not grounded in anything. It's all about just starting anew. No, no, it's very far from that. I'd like to fix that in this class, but again, to remind you how much lies at the core of this issue. It's a discussion of both our relationship with one another, as well as with God. In turn, our approach to halacha, our understanding of tradition of Torah, I mean, it's our own understanding of the world, our own application of matters that we learned and were imbued from a young age and how we then either apply them or break from them. There's a lot that lies at stake with regards to this issue. Yes, Ralph? I'm sorry, I'm just stuck on don't be, forget it. Okay, yeah. So when you use the word forget, forgetfulness is that synonymous with freshness and new, or is it two separate terms? Yes. It's it, for our purposes it's synonymous with it, it's it's forgetfulness to the extent that I, in other words, if all I knew about what our relationship was, envision it as such. Imagine you were someone with some sort of severe, um, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, mental, uh, not illness, but uh, a situation in which you get stuck and fixated. If my relationship is defined by, I had a child who at a young age became stuck on matters. He would line up cars and he couldn't m mess them up. If you mess them up, he would have temper tantrums. Imagine that's your relationship with your wife. So you're saying it's intuitive, it's, it's natural, of course I'm not stuck in that, but imagine it was. That's the, that's, the, that's the history over there. My history is we spend time in X, Y, and Z fashion, we talk about ABC. You have to forget, and again, this is an easy forgetfulness in that relationship, understood as such. You need to forget that that's what we did in the past in order to do something differently now there's going to be more severe circumstances. This is, again, I'm doing it for, for argument's sake in this circumstance, but yeah, that, that's what I'm referring to. Again, I, I'll give you more severe circumstances. So in, in order to develop what I'm hoping will be a little bit more of a balanced approach, not that I, not that I think I per se didn't present it um, properly in the past, but I don't know it was as balanced, I'll begin you with three separate sources, which will begin us uh, where we began last time. Uh, the first source is from a book called Zachor. Zachor is a book written by a Jewish historian. His name was Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi. With such a name, you'd imagine he's like related to Benish High or something like that. Far from it. He, was, he actually grew up a somewhat of a traditional Jew at the end of his life, or for much of his life he was not. He was a professor in Columbia University for many years. The name of his book, very appropriately, is Zachor. Now, what's the name, uh, the, you know, the, the, the subscript to the name? Jewish history and Jewish memory. And that's exactly what he talks about over the course of most of the book. He describes, it's a book that's published in 1982. He describes how in Judaism, the concept of history 
is anachronistic. We didn't really have history. The Torah talks about zikaron. The rabbis aren't per se interested in Talmud in recording history. When they tell you stories, they have a vantage point. They have an angle. They're not trying to get accuracy with regards to all the details that they're mentioning. That's not bothering them. You know, people get very high strung and, and, and caught up. How is it that Zohar has details in it which seem to come or clearly come later than the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? So the answer first and foremost is even traditional answers. So it's composed later. How is it that they composed it while inserting those details? How dare they? The answer is there was never, this is my, me speaking, but it's just following Yerushalmi's path along, there was never a vested interest in historical accuracy to that extent. The point of history was to teach lessons. And that's the way it always was. Zechor yemot olam in the Torah, binu shenot or badoret, she'ala v'icha v'yagetcha, zekenech v'yomer ulach. The purpose is that you turn to your parents and they teach you lessons. That's always what it was, is his claim. He calls that a collective memory as opposed to history. History is static. History is this is what it was, no interpretation open. Again, the example, I think I said it in last week's class, and then two weeks ago class, but I think it bears mention again just in terms of portraying this idea. It's this story that, I, that, that I've told, and I'll tell it again, of my child having the, S, the, the paper on 9-11. My child comes home and says, I have to interview one of my parents about what took place on 9-11. 11, 2001. So he turned to me. I have, generally speaking, the better memory in our, in our family. So he turned to me and I started describing what took place on that day. It happens to be I was with my wife on that day. As I'm in the midst of describing to him what happened, my wife walks into the room, starts rolling her eyes. That's not the way that happened. I remember this differently and so forth. My child, just interested in getting back to his iPad or beginning his iPad for the night, just uh, throws his hands up in despair. What am I supposed to write? And my answer, and I really understood this and it crystallized in that moment, was you write whichever, whichever memory you want. Your essay is on memory, it's not on history. By definition, history would have been look in a book, watch a video, sit, check it on Google and find some accurate, accurate description and portrayal. You're supposed to describe what we remember. By definition, our memory is going to be defined by the context of our life, the trajectory afterwards. That's what memory is. That's what it is in Torah and mitzvot and in the Jewish nation, suggests Yosef Chaim Rosham. What's that? It's his story, it's remembering. Well, his story, we want it to be actually history. Anyway, as I hear, he at the very end of his book, he actually quotes from an Argentinian uh, uh, author, a a well-known one, Jorge Luis Borges. He's an early 20th century author. I don't know much about him, Jacob, so don't get too too carried away. He tells a story, the name of the story is Funes the Memorius, which haunts me largely because because although Borges did not intend it so, uh, it looms as a possibly demonic parable for a potential okay, whatever, to modern histori- historiography as a whole. It is a tale about an Irigyan, how do we pronounce Irigim, there you are. Okay, good. Um, that's this guy, Funes, who as a result of a fall from a horse at the age of 19, found that henceforth he could forget nothing, absolutely nothing. Okay, so there's the circumstance. It's a fictional story in which the protagonist, as it were, cannot forget anything. And as a result, well, listen to the, read those small words, small paragraphs together with me. We, in a glance, now he's quoting directly from Borges, uh, perceive three wine glasses on the table. We see three wine glasses. Funes saw all the shoots, clusters, and grapes of the vine. As you understand, he got stuck in every single detail. 
He saw the whole production of the wine. He didn't just see three glasses. He remembered the shapes of the clouds in the south at the dawn of the 30th of April of 1882, and he could compare them in his recollection with the marbled grain and the design of a leather-bound book he had seen only once, and with the lines on the spray which an oar raised in the Rio Negro on the eve of the battle. Now, the description is every time he saw or experienced something, he got stuck in every past event and any detail which resembled it. Now that's a very stressful and disenabling life. Uh, That's a life in which a person can't move because every time they encounter something, they get stuck based on every detail associated which they can't get out of their mind. In effect, Funes remembered not only every leaf on every tree of every wood, but every one of the times he had perceived or imagined it. He determined to reduce all of his experience to some 70,000 recollections, which he would later define numerically. Two considerations dissuaded him, the thought that the task was uh, interminable and the thought that it was useless. He knew at the hour of his death death he would scarcely have finished classifying even all the memories of his childhood, it was impossible. But all his mind did was remember and know everything that had transpired. The shadow of Funes, the memorius, hovers over all of us today. today, uh, Over us all. Today, increasingly, historiography itself becomes the object of historical inquiry. So if you understand, Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, although a Jewish historian, and will yet return to this, is a little bit nervous about this concept of history. He says history is going to catch us and make us stuck in place. We won't be able to experience life. We won't be able to push ourselves as a people, as individuals forward, if we're stuck in those past details. In fact, I've read a book written by A.R. Luria. A.R. Luria was this Russian um, neurologist who, uh, a psychologist and neurologist, who wrote letters or was written to and responded to my favorite author, Oliver Sacks, and he has this, uh, one of his most famous books, The Mind of a Mnemonist. And in this book, he describes an actual case of a person, not a made-up case, who actually cannot move beyond the memories that he has. He's got this fantastic mind in which he sees and feels and realizes everything as he has seen it every time in the past. And as a result, his life is completely messed up. He lacks fluid relationships with people. He's not able to comport himself in the real world. And he tells him, for example, he has a record of May 1939. I'll just read that quickly with you just to demonstrate again the danger, ironically, of over-remembering, or alternatively, knowing without forgetting. I had to go to court on some business. This is the protagonist. This is the one he's writing about. He never tells you his name. He calls him S. He says, I had to go to court. A very simple case, which I ought to have won. I prepared what I was going to say. I could see the whole scene. I can't deal with things any other way. So in other words, the way he, he deals with everything is he sees it. How does he see it? He hasn't experienced it yet. He's been there in the past. He's been to a court in the past. And as a result, this courtroom that he's going into has to be identical to the past ones. He can't see differently. He can't, quote unquote, forget the past ones. He's still, quote unquote, in the relationship with his wife the way they were the first time they met. There was the large courtroom in his mind, the rows of chairs, the judge's table on the right. I stood at the left and spoke. Everyone was satisfied with the evidence I had given, and I won. All right, that's what he sees in his mind as he's approaching the court. But in fact, it proved to be entirely differently from, different from what I had expected. When I entered the courtroom, the judge wasn't sitting on the right, but on the left, so that I had to speak from the other side of the room. Now, if that happened to me and you, we'd, we'd move on, right? But he couldn't. It wasn't at all... Um, 
like what I had seen. And I just lost my head. I couldn't put my points across, and naturally I lost the case. Now that's the description, again, which can and does in very different ways haunt each of us. It's not per se because, all right, it's not per se because we're stuck in that respect to that extent, but we do sometimes get stuck in the tradition to the extent that it can't find its new coordinates while staying staunch in the past. I'm still bringing you in the direction of uh, venerating and realizing the importance of that forgetfulness. That's right. That's right. 100%. And we'll get to that point in, in a bit. Uh, lastly, there's a new book of Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, her book on Vayikra, The Hidden Order of in- Intimacy, here on page 33 through 34. The context is not important for us right now. So she, she's t- developing this point. And she quotes from several philo- philosophers, um, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, who talked about the importance, the necessity of forgetfulness in order to live a life of virtue, of success, of vibrancy. Montaigne, for instance, at the end of the first line, experience teaches that a good memory is generally joined to a weak judgment, right? In other words, if I have too good a memory, I won't be able to now, in the present case, commit myself to judging appropriately. I'm just stuck on what I've done in the past. I'm just stuck on the way it's been. Or Nietzsche, many a man fails to become a thinker for the sole reason that his memory is too good. My memory is too good as a result. I can't think independent of that now. Life in any true sense is absolutely impossible without forgetfulness, also from Nietzsche. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. It's, 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 the, it's the concept of Torah. It's the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin. And now you inspired me to this thought that the whole Yom they're supposed to Yubeinecha Thank you so much. It's not just you're suggesting, Ralph, an idea with regards to my excitement to approaching the Torah. It's that the Torah will be misinterpreted if I'm stuck in the way I interpreted it yesterday. Okay, well, that's it. That's it. Now, to demonstrate again, I'm just bringing you further in the same direction for a few more moments, I will remind you that in that past class, and here's where we move beyond the philosophers and neurologists and into our Torah texts, I will remind you that we talked about, quote-unquote, the paradigm of the memory, or history is the right word, the one who stuck in what it was and can't move beyond that, and that we gave as Tanaim, we mentioned ben Hurkanus. if you recall the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot in Perek Bet, Mishnah Chet as Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai talking about the virtues of each of his students, he says the greatest of his students, if they were all on one side of the scale and this one on the other it would be Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus tell me, what was so great about Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, so he spoke about the virtues of each of them. What was Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus? He was a borsud or a borsid she'enome abed tipa, which means to say he was a plastered well which never loses a drop of water. That's in contrast to another one of his students who was Rabbi Lazar ben Arach. He was a ma'ayan hamitgaber. He was a growing spring. What's the difference between a well which is stuck and, and built so that it doesn't lose any water to the, to the gushing, rushing spring. The gushing, rushing spring doesn't maintain its water, but there's new water flowing through at all times. The well maintains that st- same water, says Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai. That's the greatness of Bibili Ezer ben Hurkanus. In fact, along those lines, we mentioned that the Gemara Masechet Sukkah, Dafkaf Het, describes Bibili Ezer 
as exclaiming the greatness of himself when he's asked questions on one Sukkot by several others. He says, I can't answer all them. I can only answer the ones which I heard from my rabbi. Of course, he's referring to Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai. And they say to him, what do you mean? You can't give your own Hidushim? He says, don't you know, my method, my approach to life is one in which I don't say anything my rabbi didn't teach me. I didn't hear from my rabbi. That's Rabbi Ezer ben Hurkanus. That's the one we know. He maintains it all. In fact, Rashi, in one or two places, suggests that the reason the Gemara refers to Rabbi Ezer as Shamuti, as being a shamuti, is milashon shamai. Shamai, like he was a follower and adherent to the approach of Bet Shamai. Bet Shamai is very much in that heavenly domain, leaving the Torah. We talked about that Gemara. It's in source number seven as well. The continuation of that Gemara in which Rabbi Ezer claims to the rabbis, the halachas like me, because God will prove it. Wait a second, Rabbi Ezer. Can you find a better proof than God proving it? What's that? I'm going to say that with regards to their approach to halakha, they are less adaptive to humanity than Beit Hillel. That's quite clear. You want to call that innovation? I'll call it innovation. What's that? First luchot, the second luchot. I mean, so, so, the, the, the difference between the first and second luchot, I'll demonstrate it even further now that we're on the dirashot here, which is good stuff. The first luchot talks about the hakika talks about how they were chiseled. That's a, that's, a, that's a feature which is mentioned specifically, something that's chiseled in. That's right, something that's chiseled, which is what we'll return to. And as a result, the hachamim, as, as Jacob's reminding us, say that the first luchot, had they not been shattered, we never would have lo- forgotten Torah. That's the Rabili Ezeb and Hurkanus that we know. It's the Torah in the heavens. It's what we're now hearing. Interestingly, fascinatingly, and it's a point that I overlooked, but I was thinking about this recently and realized, and I had to run to open the book and just check myself on this. The Midrash, I quoted half of this Midrash in a class a month and a half ago. I wanted to just finish the Midrash. I remembered it. I was very excited that I remembered it correctly. In Pekedir Bili Ezer Perek Bet, this is the well-known story of the origins of Rabili Ezer ben Hurkanus. Says the Gemara Amru, says the Midrash Amru, they said, Amru Banav Shel Hurkanus the sons of Hurkanus, the brothers of Rabbi Eliezer, said to their father, Go to Jerusalem, and this son of yours who ran away from home to go study Torah. This is a 21st century situation. The child got too religious, now the father needs to... Anyway, uh, go and uh, excommunicate him. Tell him he's not getting any of your possessions. Again, the ironic... Reality is ultimately speaking to Belias, who doesn't get excommunicated with regards to finances from his father. He gets it from his friends, the rabbis, who were never really his friends. That's the Gemara Bava Mitziah, He gets excommunicated for leaving the Torah, quote unquote, in the heavens. Anyway, says the Midrash, Rabbi Eliezer's father comes, comes and finds his son there involved in teaching Torah. But the backdrop, okay, the punchline, of course, is that ultimately speaking, his father is convinced how wonderful my son is and so forth. Okay, but for our purposes, here's the lines I want to focus on. His rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, is urging him, is encouraging him to, to be Doresh Torah. So look at the second paragraph. Amar lo says Rabbi Ezer to his rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I'm going to give you a parable to explain why I can't make my own Dirashot. What's this situation similar to? Lebor hazeh. To a well. Oh, this is very appropriate. It can't 
give out more water than that which was put into it, so too he turns to this rabbi and says, you want me to say something different from what you instructed me? That's the Rabbi Eliezer we know and love. That's the one we're expecting. Amar lo, says this rabbi, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, im sholecha mashal, Let me give you a counterexample. Here's my parable. Why don't you envision yourself instead as a stream or a, uh, a spring which brings forth new water? In turn, says Rabban Yochanan ben Zakaya, put it in bold. So too, you can rush forth those new springs, quote unquote, that will bring forth more Torah and novelties than that which we received at Sinai. Now, don't get too heretical over here, but understand the message of the rabbi to student. And Rabbi Ezra says the Midrash goes along with it. And indeed, that's what he does. Fascinatingly, much as we suggested in the past class, the Rav Yosef, who was the Sinai, but had to forget his Torah, so too, Rabili Ezeb and Hurkanus, our paradigmatic, even he, the one who says about himself that I never said anything, maybe halacha, that I didn't hear from my rabbi, he himself, in the context of the Dirasha, in the well-known story of his life, has to forget a bit, quote-unquote, has to move out of the absolute memory of what his rabbi told him and knowledge of it. Because after all, the ability to forget comes forth specifically by detaching a bit from the source. When we're connected to the source, we can't forget. It's only when we detach a bit. That's what he needs to do in order to bring forth truth that had henceforth not been discovered. Along those lines, lastly, I will tell you that, go ahead. How seriously is supposed to take the line that you're supposed to get this more Torah than the human Not beyond anything that you're comfortable with. You know what I'm saying? In other words, but the idea being, listen, the Midrash alternatively says that Moshe had revealed to him everything that any student was going to say in the future. What does that mean? Oh, you're going to love this one. What that means is what was revealed to Moshe is Torah, which encapsulates all potential interpretations and truths. So what it means is you're going to bring forth and substantiate, actualize matters that hadn't been, not existent, but hadn't been realized until now. It's the Rabbi Akiva, which we'll return to at, well, at the end of the class, of Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moshe is hearing and he doesn't know what he's saying, says Marhu, the well-known uh, Kabbalistic tradition is, Moshe knew it in principle, he didn't know, quote-unquote, where to find it in the Torah. So it's that, along those lines, it's not something, if it was not at Sinai, so then it's hard for us to believe that it's true. That mean it along those lines, but it means it's a hidush. That is the concept of hidush. My purpose in bringing this is to say, even Abiliezer, even our rabbi who is so stuck in knowledge, in history, is forced into memory over here, is forced into forgetfulness. Along those lines as well. Well, I, I purposefully contrasted history to memory, as Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi did. So that's why I called it memory and forgetfulness. So memory by definition. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Good. 
Good. You got no, not a typo. The Gemara Masech Bava Metziah here in source number seven. That's the midrash we discussed last time as well. It's the dispute of Rabbi Eliezer and the other rabbis. Tanu Shelachnai. Rabbi Eliezer is claiming halachas like me. The rabbis are disagreeing with him in order to prove his point. He has all sorts of miraculous things take place, and then ultimately speaking, a bat called this heavenly voice comes out and says halacha could be the ezer. Why are you bothering him? At which point the rabbis determine appropriately to excommunicate him. After all is said and done, the Midrash describes how Rabbi Natan finds Eliyahu Hanavi. I have always loved these stories of Eliyahu Hanavi, every single one of them in the Gemara, specifically because I'm convinced that we need to take them somewhat literally. It's an amazing thing. I'm convinced, based on my conversations and readings from many important people, that there is a concept in our nation, I can't explain this, this one you can leave off with the transcriptions, of the appearance of Eliyahu Hanavi. Okay, that notwithstanding has no bearing on this class. That's just to, to tell you tell you how mystical I am. Right, right. Anyway, turns to Binatan and he asks Eliyahu, so what's God doing right now? And it's a well-known response. It's in the last line here in source number seven. What was God doing? At the moment, so to speak, this is clearly anthropomorphic. We don't mean God is actually doing any of what we're describing. But so to speak, what is the heaven approach to? What took place over here? Can you imagine? We're defying God. Can you? And the response is, God is, so to speak, smiling. And he's saying, My children have been nitzhuni. Now the word nitzhuni in its most simple interpretation means to defeat. God, so to speak, with a smile on his face says, I've been defeated. It's the way I would say it. It's the way my father has said to me more than once. You know, he's seen me doing something. He's proud of me, but it's different than the way he would have done it. So he'll under his breath or out loud say, Banim gidalti v'romamti v'hempashi ubi, or he'll say v'hempashi ubi, not to be real Syrian in that. And what he means is with a big smile, oh, look at him, you know. It's, it's any time, for example, this, this one you'll like, Ralph. Anytime he'll hear me quote Zohar or say the Mekubalim, so he'll smile, ah, you know, that's my son, you know, whatever. But he's very proud of it. He enjoys it very much. It's just different. So that's that's the general approach to the Gemara. So to speak, they defeated me. They're determining it. It's not against my will, but so to speak, it's not what I declared. Ironically, the paradox. Alternatively, and Rabbi Amnon Bazak points this out in source number nine in his book, Nitzhuni Banai. In source number eight, he found a source called Toldot Adam. Toldot Adam. What's that? Understood. I said it's paradoxical. Well, he said halachas ezer, but at the same time he declared, don't listen to me. That's what I meant by the paradox. So in Toldot Adam, which is a late 18th, early 19th century book from Vilna, he suggests that the translation of the word nitzhuni maybe has a double entendre. It has another interpretation from the word netzach, to make eternal. Netzach sela, netzach va'ed. And in turn, the interpretation, listen carefully, to Nitzhuni Banai is God exclaiming, as it were, that by human beings, quote unquote, forgetting what I said, the batkol, neglecting it and determining it based on the coordinates and details of their own lives and their understanding and application of it, that's how they've eternalized my essence, my Torah. Do you understand? Think about a relationship again. Your relationship will only continue 
when it is relevant to your own states in time and being with one another. Our understanding of knowledge will only continue and be relevant if it is exactly so, if it keeps that life to it. The response in turn of Nitzhuni Banai is by neglecting the Rabili Ezer approach, by determining ironically that Torah is not Min HaShamayim in this circumstance, that we're not determining Min HaShamayim He, Effectively, they're keeping me going, says God, because they're forgetting in order to bring me back in. They're forgetting what is no longer their reality and bringing it into their own. That's the vision, that's the description. Again, what I've done over the course of these first nine sources is, is, is reiterate and remind you from different vantage points the same point we made in last class, and that's that necessity of a healthy, quote-unquote, forgetfulness. I haven't yet balanced it. Are you getting Kabbalistic on me? I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it, but it's, it's, it's along the same lines of eternal. They're orchestrating. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Now, that being the case, again, I'm now returning in these next four sources to... I haven't balanced it yet appropriately because I've very much focused on the forgetfulness thus far still. I haven't yet told you, but make sure you have history at the same time, which of course we need. I was thinking about going there, maybe a future class, which is very relevant. Anyway, the next, the next four sources from 10 to 13, we already discussed. I'll quickly review them because it'll be important for us in turn to remind ourselves of where we are. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat describes in Daf Kof Mem Vav about how at Ma'amad Har Sinai we were, so to speak, returned to an original time, returned to Gan Eden, right? The, uh, the poison, the filth of the Nahash, which was injected, so to speak, into Hava and into humanity, was lost at Ma'amad Har Sinai with the reception of of the first Luchot. That's describing us as retaining, returning to the source. If you return to the source, the rabbis in Masechet Eruvin and Dafnundalit say, had the first tablets not been shattered, we never would have forgotten Torah. Of course not. We were connected to the source. The Midrash and Shirashirim Rabbah, therefore, in source number 12, is somewhat surprising unless you have the understanding that we've been setting forth. The, the Bnei Israel turned to God, turned to Moshe as God is speaking to him during the time of Aseret and the Berot at Ma'amat Sinai. Please don't let God speak to us any longer because as he speaks to us, we realize that we don't forget anything. Why would you want to forget? You're connected to the source. It's a startling statement of the B'nai Israel in the eyes of the Hachamim in that moment. But of course, it's the same statement of the rabbis of Masechet Shabbat and Pezayin as well, that God, as it were, applauds Moshe for shattering the Luchot. Why should you be applauding him? No, quite the opposite. The fear of retaining in source number 12 is what they don't want. That's what the Midrash says. Oh, so now we're hitting our punchline. You know the answer. Well, you know, but you know the answer. But I'm also not living a regular life. I'm living a static life. It's not that I can't sin because Adam HaRishon did sin. It's more difficult to sin. However, I'm not actually, but I'm not being me. But I'm not me. 
I'm not creative, I'm not independent in any way. Of course, I want a context, of course, I want a structure, but who am I? If I'm so connected, it's the example I've given on more than one occasion. I'm, you know, they're, they're in, in the yeshiva world, they give the following, the, the following, they, 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 if I remember correctly, this is the way it's, it's said in the name, it's in, it's in the book, Mi Ad Yerushalayim by Rabbi Meir Berlin, uh, or Meir Berlin, Alav HaShalom, that's Barilan. Um, so he was the, the son of the Nitziva Velazhim. So the, the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, and this is just cute, just to get across the point. Um, the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin has the following statement. It's, it talks about whether you should study Torah and only then get married, or alternatively, get married and then seriously engage in Torah. And the Gemara has two approaches to it, and the, the approach that claims that you should not get married first, and the, the exclamation is, you're going to have the grinding stone around your neck and you're going to be studying Torah. In other words, your wife isn't the grinding stone. The fact that you have to support a family is the grinding stone. You think you're going to be able to study Torah? So the joke, the claim, that story, the legend is that in Velazhin Yeshiva, there was a student who became so close with Rab Chaim Salavechik to the extent that the Nitziva Velazhin said, you need to distance yourself a little bit. He said, why? He said, Reb Chaim al-Tzavarov, y'asok Torah. You think if you have Reb Chaim at your side, you're gonna be able to independently engage in Torah? You can't think if you have the rabbi on top of you at all times. So you're right, you're not gonna be sinning, but you're also not going to be you. You're also not going to be living. That's the description throughout. Again, that's the rupture we re- refer to. That's the healthy forgetfulness we're describing. That's the vibrancy, which is a necessity, but, and here's where we're going back to the fear of Ralph after last class, there's a very clear danger over here. As much as we talk about forgetfulness, are you serious, Rabbi? Do you want to shatter in Luhot all the time? That's right, this is, and that was his claim. Those are the specific words he said. He said, okay, okay, we've got, we got many other issues in line. Well, as a result, I want to bring you forward a bit um, and, and remind you and tell you that the Torah is very keen on us remembering. So, lest you think that it's all about forgetting, the Torah is very keen on us remembering. Would you say the things that we have to remember are things that basically God don't believe these things. They're not, they're not. I, would, I wouldn't say it like that. So give, give me a second. Keep in mind, I'm telling you, quote unquote, to forget Torah. I don't actually mean that, of course. So, the question is where we do, and it's going to be very tricky. And I'm going to tell you that we are going to have, hopefully have a settling punchline over here, but the punchline is not going to leave you walking out and saying, oh, so life now is easy. It's going to be a major challenge. But here's the direction. The Torah and Parashat Vayet Hanan, um, according to Ramban's understanding of it, uh, forces us, Ramban, in two places, describes us as a mitzvah from the Torah to remember Ma'amad Har Sinai. You cannot forget Ma'amad Har Sinai. The Torah says, Rakisham pen, be very careful. Don't forget that which you saw. Tell your children about it. What? About what? And so on and so forth. Uh, what are we supposed to be remembering? What are we not allowed to forget? Oh, come on. Everything I've been telling you about is forgetfulness. What are you talking about? No, but there's a mitzvah from the Torah, not to forget Ma'amad Har Sinai, to the extent that Nefesh Hayim in source number 15, in Sha'adal and Perik Yodal, he quotes this two or three times in Sha'adalit, quotes from Zohar that every time you study Torah, you're supposed to reenact 
re-envision and re-experience the reception of Torah and Har Sinai. That's right, you can't forget it because you're there. The Gemara Masech Berachot and Daf Kaf Bet Amudal talks about how from this Derashan Pesukim, Bahoda'atam Levanech Lebnei Banecha, understood by the rabbis as Talmud Torah, study Torah, instructed to your children. What's the connection between studying Torah and Har Sinai? You know, we got the Torah and Har Sinai. Say the rabbis, the same way the Torah was received at Har Sinai, with trepidation, with fear, with this hesitancy, with this awe, with this inspiring circumstance, so too every Torah that you study must be in such a fashion. Do you understand what that's saying? That's saying that every Torah is supposed to bring me back to Har Sinai. It's the opposite, it seems, of everything we've been discussing until now, to the extent that on other occasions, I've talked very extensively about this. Rabbi Salvechik, as a matter of fact, wrote and talked about this in many circumstances, how for him and his understanding of halacha, and there are many midrashim which I've supported this with, on many occasions, Torah is purposed to be a reenactment of Har Sinai. Kiryata Torah is supposed to be so. Certainly the Talmud Yerushalmi has a the fact that we have always two people up at the sefer is for that reason. You know, when the Baal Kore gets an aliyah, you have someone stand next to him. Who said to whom? God says it to Moshe. What does it have to do with Kiryat Torah? Kiryat Torah is supposed to be that reenactment. Maharam of Rotenberg has this minhag quoted by Rama in Shohan Aruch. He's supposed to stand for Kiryat Torah for what reason? He stood at Har Sinai, he's supposed to be standing up for this as well. And so forth, many other examples. Wait a second, everything I've been telling you is about separate. How we bring ourselves back to it? Yes, Ralph? According to Maharami Rotenberg, why not Posek that way? Well, I now mention in this context the very important words of Ramban, both in his commentary to the Torah and in his hasagot, his, his, um, his um, remarks to Harambam and Sefer HaMitzvot. Let's read specifically from source number 18. Shechichat Lavin, Mitzvah Bet. This is Ramban. Harambam leaves this out of his Sefer HaMitzvot. Yes, he does not mention. Ramban, here in source number 18, says, wait a second, you forgot a mitzvah. Harambam does not have, it's an important question, what does he do? Megillat Esther, which is a commentary on, on Sefer HaMitzvot, defends Harambam and explains how he would interpret these Pesukim. But ultimately speaking, it's not a mitzvah. But according to Ramban Nachmani, which it is a mitzvah, at the very least it's a virtue, at the very least it's something the rabbis are speaking up. Ramban Nachmani, though, has a very telling line over here. Ramban Nachmani notices that the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin on Daflamid Amudalv has a derasha. The derasha over there is these two Pesukim teach you something else. They teach Teach you that if you teach your grandchild Torah, it's as if you're standing at Har Sinai. The day on which you are on Sinai, that's what it is. Says Ramban, don't get thrown off by that. The purpose of these Pesukim is to remember Har Sinai. Wait a second, the rabbis are talking about something altogether different. Listen to his words. Kilimud, I mean, the bold words, four lines in. Emunata Torah, halimud Torah. The study of Emunata Torah, the trust in Torah. That is the study of Torah. And I think what he's describing with this, and if you read his full passage completely and properly as well, what Ramban is suggesting is that Ma'amad Har Sinai as a mitzvah for us to remember is not so much the content and the absolute utterances as the experience. We need a grounding, we need a structure. 
We need a truth moment in time during which I can now tap back into. If my child, for argument's sake, turned to me and said to me, if your child turns to you and says, hey, dad, could you tell me about 9-11? I have an assignment for school. I don't know how old you were then, but you were probably young. You don't have much of a memory of that day, but you start making up a whole thing. That's complete and utter nonsense. That's not a memory. That's a lie. History would be you're opening up the encyclopedia and assuming it is objective information, reading it to him. Memory is I experience it and I can tell him how I remember it. A lie is telling something you're completely disconnected, you don't even have the structural component. That's the point in turn of the Torah telling us remember Har Sinai. It's not saying per se get stuck in it. Each one of the Midrashim we mentioned, the Zohar, the Gemara in Berachot says, re-experience Har Sinai. It doesn't say, and therefore just speak the words of Har Sinai. It says, study Torah Shba'al I look at Har Sinai. I don't see Torah Shba'al Peh in our Torah Shbikhtav. It's just Ten Commandments. Maybe that's what I need to learn every single day. Every si- No. Return to that moment. Re-experience it. Structure your study through the prism of that experience. Understand what you're doing through that mindset and in turn, remember. That's the critical line. I bring you back to our original sources. We mentioned what's context. That's what zikaron is. Zikaron must be grounded in an appropriate context. It has to have a structure. And in turn, you then find yourself in it. It's not to say that I sever from it. That would be reform. That would be reconstructionist. I'm reconstructing what once was. It's not what we're doing. We're returning to what once was, but we're now defining it and realizing it in the present. To return to our earlier sources, and I mentioned this in the past class, Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi in 1987 was asked to be a part of some sort of conference, conference in which I think the topic was something like the usefulness of forgetfulness. And he has this essay, it's a postscript to the book, at the end of the book, Zachor, and I saw it in a book with interviews of him later on where he, he expresses this again, in which he basically says he's very unsettled by this whole thing. And he doesn't say it exactly in these words, but along these lines, he gets very nervous that he was the cause of something which is very unhealthy. And I'll say it in my own words before we read some of his own words. He's effectively nervous that, now that he said, quote unquote, we've never been governed by history, People will just say to history, okay, to heck with it. Let's burn the library and define for ourselves what our reality is. Let's have this new generation in which postmodernism, to the extreme extent, will define for us there are no truths. Oh, that's a truth? No, that's history. We don't govern our lives by history. He gets very nervous by that. As a result, he writes historiography. That's the study of history. Sure. Sure, historiography, I will continue to insist, cannot be a substitute for collective memory. So he says, don't define zikaron as history, it's not so. Nor does it show signs of creating an alternative tradition that is capable of being shared. It says history is static, history is stuck in place, but the essential dignity of the historical vocation remains. Remains. He says, I'm still very proud to be a historian, effectively, which is his job. And its moral imperative seems to me now more urgent than ever. For in a world in which we live, it is no longer merely a question of decay of collective memory and the declining consciousness of the past, but of the aggressive rape of whatever memory remains, the deliberate distortion of the historical record, the invention of mythological past in the service of the powers of darkness. I pause here and I remind you and 
2022. Think, for example, about a person who claims, based on a book of this nature, oh, the Holocaust? What do you mean? The history? We don't define things by history. How do we interpret that through our lenses of today? You've lost... You, you've lost everything. You've severed yourself from any truth in such a circumstance. But the claim could be made if you're extreme to this uh, Yerushalmi approach. And as a result, listen to his next uh, next paragraph. And so, given that we cannot draw the lines between too much and too little historical research, and that's the tricky part of everything, I pause and I tell you, the question throughout will be in our own lives, in the determination of halakha, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, how much focus do we have on our history? How much is there on the forgetting? And there's no simple answer. And different stages and ages of life will bring forth different things. As a result, modern Zionism is appropriate, in my opinion, from a religious perspective today, whereas 100 years ago it may have been inappropriate. Women's involvement in halakha, appropriate as it must be, and in Talmud Torah in a serious way, appropriate as it must be, could be potentially appropriate if done right today, whereas 100 years ago, it would not have been. So it's not that we're severing from history, it's that at moments in time, because of these ruptures of sort, there's a certain forgetfulness which is healthy. Now that's very tricky, it's very dangerous, and it's very scary, but we needed the balancing act over here of pointing out, he says, I cannot draw easily the line between too much and too little history, for we have no halakha beyond ourselves. If this be the choice, he says, if I have a choice, therefore, and keep in mind, this is Yosef Chaim Rushalmi, who wrote a book five years prior to him writing this called Zachor, arguing that we're not about history, we're about memory, about collective memory, quote unquote, in my words, it's about forgetting, I will take my stand on the side of too much rather than too little. He said, I'd rather be in the history camp, which means to say in our contexts, right, if it's going to be, let's move it ahead and make it relevant to our time, halakha and so forth. If it's going to lead me and you, because we don't know how to properly structure this into precarious, dangerous waters, then we may as well staunch ourselves instead in the extreme tradition. That's the, that's the danger here, and he himself is speaking about that and saying, I'm nervous about this, and when I'm stuck with this, I have to veer to quote the history, for my terror of forgetting is greater than my terror of having too much to remember. Okay, that's his statement. Along those same lines, we read in the beginning of the class from this woman, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. And remember, she was quoting from all the philosophers who spoke about the virtue and the necessity of forgetfulness. She as well, she then fleshes out the end of that Borges story. Remember the Borges story about that Funes, the memorias, the one who remembers everything, remember all the anxiety it gave to him? On the other hand, as Borges says at the close of his melancholy, melancholy case history before his stroke before his stroke Funes had been quote listen to what he was before he became remember the, the, the fictional character who remembers everything what was he before he remembered everything what all human beings are blind deaf addle-brained absent-minded pause for a second what was he in other words this author this Borges this Ar Argentinian author he describes two extremes 
you're either remembering everything and stuck and static, or alternatively, you're that driven leaf. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're not connected to anything. You're absent-minded. You're a human being as with all the deficiencies of humanity. As in science fiction, Borges' story jolts our sanely moderate perspectives. Too much memory, too little memory. The reader is not offered a choice, but rather reference to Ketodian insufficiency. Neither is this a dialectical perspective. Instead, we are suspended between the two helpless conditions as though there is no other way to reveal an irreducible dilemma for which the solution is not simply the right amount he she's describing and again it's what i've hopefully been bringing forth over the course of this class the dilemma that we as human beings as conscious need to live with on the one hand we're staunch in tradition on the one hand our masoret defines who we are when I talk about halakha, I tell you halakha is defined by what we've done. How do you know what we've done? Well, go and ask your father, ask your grandfather. No, but they didn't know. No, they knew because they did what they were shown and what they knew to do. On the one hand, that's what we do. On the other hand, but the world is a different world. It reminds me of a terrible conversation I overheard uh, two years ago in a specific context, doesn't matter what it was, in which someone was arguing for a specific minhag that was in effect in a synagogue for some years, for several decades. And the other person said, how, how could you be doing this? To which that person responded, this is the way we did it in Halab. To which the, the person, the, the antagonist in the story, the, the one who's yelling at him said, oh, well, we're not living in Halab any longer. And it was, in the moment, I thought it was a disgusting line. I mean, you're going against them. And I, but think about it from a, from a parv perspective, outside of that mahlokit. What the claim was, effectively, was, well, are we with the times? It's important for us to be staunch in our history. Our history will define who we are. But at the same time, there needs to be a certain, uh, a certain forgetfulness because we have had that rupture. We're no longer living in halab. And as a result, the realities are not the same. So where do we draw the line? There's no simple answer to that question. That's what we're struggling with. That's the point she's making. What is shattered with the, t- the tablets? Fetishizing memory. Extreme awareness that allows nothing to slip. So God ascends to Moshe's instinct to break the tablets, to make space for the human modality of absence, loss, fragmentation, error, and so forth. In other words, the breaking of the luchot brings forth the human side. However, but as with the Borges story, the two modalities both remain vital. Clearly, the rabbis have a large investment in learning and remembering, as indeed does the Torah itself. The concluding line for us on this is, this is not simply about a proper balance between the values of memory and those of forgetting. You and me, I'm speaking to us, will never be able to, quote, strike a balance. There's no such thing. I'll live my life, I'll remember halfway. What do you mean? It doesn't work like that. Fundamentally, we're staunched in the history. Alternatively, as those ruptures make their way into our collective national communal life, we then need to with caution, with hesitation, I'm talking about in halakha, in a relationship, we need to take those steps slowly and carefully, quote, in the forgetfulness realm. So again, back to your point, Ralph, before we conclude the class, of the danger of the message of this forgetfulness. I will remind you, for example, that we mourn the deaths of Rabbi Akiva's students. We don't celebrate them. Although in last class I called it a bittersweet circumstance, well, they're lost and it made the way, it opened the grounds for this new direction. We don't say, let's now eat eat, drink, and be merry over the first 33 days of the Omer because we lost the old tradition and we have now Torah Shabbat. No, we stop and we pause, we reflect and we bemoan and, 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 and uh, regret 
the loss of those lives, the, forget, the forgotten Torah that came with that. That's not to say that we don't in turn as well realize a rupture, but it begins and it's staunchly grounded in the history which precipitates it all. What's that? We mourn the breaking of the Luchot, indeed. We, we include it as one of the tragedies of, that's right, of the fast days. Well, that all being the case, I now bring you to the final lines over here, just in terms of portraying this, maybe appropriately. And here's how I at least envision it now for the last period of time. It goes like this. Here's how I would describe what we're effectively doing. You see, the Torah describes there in Parashat Vayat Hanan, Moshe speaking to Am Yisrael, tells them what Ma'amad Har Sinai was like. And one of the descriptions he has, in addition to all the things that took place that people saw, there's a kol gadol velo yasaf. I love those words. You know it from an earlier class or classes. You see, as much as you say I come back to the same points, there's so many of the same points, it's got to be, there's, there's enough going on over here. What does kol gadol velo yasaf mean? Well, kol means sound. Gadol means great. Lo yasaf, what do those words mean? Rashi gives two interpretations. Either lo yasaf means it doesn't have an end, in sof, it just continues eternally. Alternatively, it's not mosif. There was our kol gadol. It's not mosif, it doesn't continue. Two opposite interpretations. Unkulu says, la pasik, it doesn't end. What do you mean it doesn't end? That's right. If you take this literally, it means you go next to Har Sinai today, you'll still hear this sound. That's an amazing thought. In fact, the rabbis in Pekei Avot, in Perek Vav, Mishnah Bet, have such a claim. If there's Amar B'Yoshua ben Levi, Bechol yom vayom, bat kol yoset, mehar chorev umachrezet v'omeret, oy lahem laberiot, me'il bonash el Torah. Did you hear the words? There's still a bat kol, which is emanating from Har Sinai, from Har Chorev today. But do you understand the point with regards to us? And I'm going to make a specific diuk, even though you don't need it, but it'll hopefully bring the point home. What do we, quote unquote, maybe hear today, we're hearing a bat kol. A bat kol is an echo, as a reverberation, which means to say we have a continued sound from Har Sinai. We're not at Har Sinai any longer. Sure, we're returning to it, but you know what we're hearing? We're hearing the echo. The echo is what now reached us. We're no longer at that moment. And yes, that provides for us the history. That gives us the grounding, the context, the structure. Ultimately speaking, what we hear is the continued voice, is the reverberation, is the echo, is the way that we now apply it to our world. That's because of the ruptures, because of the severance, the severing of an absolute connectedness, quote unquote, the shattering of the Luchot. I'll conclude the class with a Midrash, which could be interpreted in many ways other than the one I'm going to set forth right now. No doubt, I mentioned one even earlier in the class, uh, that, which would, would work it out differently, but it's the Midrash, the Gemara, and of Moshe Rabbeinu attending the class of Rabbi Akiva. And attending the class of Rabbi Akiva, he doesn't understand what's taking place. Tashash Koho. Says the Midrash, says the Gemara, Tashash Koho, Moshe gets uh, let down. He's starting to feel dejected. He feels like, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't understand this. Now listen to the irony. It's his Torah, which he brought down, and he's not understanding understanding Rabbi Akiva until, of course, one of the students asked Rabbi Akiva, how do you know? Then he responds, Moshe at which point says the Gemara, Moshe feels good. One second. Wait, you feel good? Why? Because they gave you the credit? So the standard interpretation to the Gemara is that Moshe understands that he's just articulating it in a different way than he had it. 
I'm going to go with that, but I'm going to tweak it a bit. I'm going to tweak it a bit to interpret it for our purposes along the lines of what we've been discussing. Perhaps what Moshe realizes in that moment is that there was a rupture, that the life and world in which Rabbi Akiva is living is different than the Moshe world. But the principles, the structure, the history is the same. It's just there's been a little bit of forgetfulness, and as a result, quote-unquote, its applicability looks different than it did in the past. There's now, quote-unquote, imagine your great-great-grandmother coming and seeing your wife, or you yourself, if there's a woman listening, making berachot and studying Torah and following halacha and reading from a prayer book. What is this? Grandma, don't you know? Great-great-sito, uh, don't you know? This is part of our tradition. Which tradition? The tradition of Am Yisrael, of the Syrian community, of, of, the, of, of the Ashkenazi, whatever you talk, whoever and whatever you're talking about. Can you imagine the elated state that great-grandmother will be in? My goodness, my tradition, our tradition has continued, but she doesn't know what you're talking about. That has no bearing on the coordinates of life to her a hundred years ago. What are you talking about? That's our tradition? That's not our tradition at all. Alternatively, it can and will be a part of our tradition, provided that it's staunched starkly and carefully in the history that was and is. To put it all together and to conclude the class together with you, the question of forgetting and history, memory and history, knowledge and forgetfulness, however we want to describe this issue, is one that should and could vex you for a long time. Because as you understand life, you must appropriately, ironically, accept that forgetfulness, quote unquote, moving past what you've known, is not only okay, it's healthy. You'll be stuck with all the stresses of Mr. S in the mind of the mnemonist of A.R. Lurie. Or alternatively, the uh, the fictional Funes in the story of Borges, or regardless of this, or the Am Yisrael fear at the time of receiving of the Luchot at Har Sinai, you'll be stuck in a circumstance in which you can't maneuver and deal with life as it should be. You're not expressing yourself and realizing a relationship with others, with God and appreciation of Torah because it's so stuck in a time and period which has no bearing and no relevance to you. So on the one hand, there is that forgetfulness which comes with ruptures over the course of history and time. Alternatively, the point which I hopefully now underscored and highlighted is if it's only ruptures, if it's all se separation and severing from the past, then effectively you've started a new religion. Effectively, you've, you've, you've found not a halakha Moshe Sinai, but a halakha l'rbi Akiva. That's no halakha at all. The point of the Torah in telling us to remember Har Sinai, the point of the rabbis in telling us return to Har Sinai every time you study Torah, the point of Ramban saying the point of remembering Har Sinai is emunata Torah, is getting the system, the experience of Torah, is to tell us don't per se get stuck in that moment and not be able to apply it but find that moment as it has relevancy to you in this moment. Re-experience it with the new coordinates and realities of today. The question then of forgetting and remembering means it leaves us somewhere in the middle. On the one hand, there are moments and circumstances which are uh, inexplicably necessary for us to forget. 
alternatively, will then constantly be turning backward. There are other realities in life in which the safe, the tradition, will determine everything. How and when do we determine and decide? No simple answer to that. That is the challenge of life as a conscious human being, as a person who truly cares about a relationship with God, as a person who observes Torah Miswot with a mind on reality while at the same time caring about tradition. The issue of forgetting or forget me not is an issue of existence as a human being and existence as a member of Am Yisrael. Baruch Adonai Amen v'Amen.